My name's Troy. Uh, if you haven't met before, I'd like to catch up with you later. Um, but welcome to our time together tonight. Let's uh, pray and get into Mark's Gospel. God, our Father, we thank you for our amazing Lord Jesus. That he was the man who was totally faithful to you. And that he was also God in the flesh, accomplishing all of your plans for the salvation of sinners and the restoration of this creation. And we pray that you would help us now to wrestle with who Jesus is and what he says. And we pray in his name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, as we've been reading Mark's gospel, Phil has been getting us to think of it as a movie. To think, hey, we're watching Mark's gospel, the movie. And that's been really helpful, right? Thinking about all the different episodes and watching the action ramp up at this part of the gospel. But I feel like you can also look at this part of the gospel as a game show. So without any further ado, let's play the game show I created, Disputes with Jesus, with Mr. Mark, the gospel writer, as your host. You could cue cheesy intro music at that point, but I'm not very good at that. So, The rules of the game are very, very simple. Someone presses the buzzer and brings a dispute or accusation against Jesus. Then Jesus presses the buzzer and he is able to respond. If Jesus can answer the dispute, he wins. But if he can't, the disputer wins. Let's review the last few episodes of Disputes with Jesus to see who's in the lead. Ever since Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it's been Jesus versus the Jewish leaders. Let's see where the scoreboard is up to. Last episode, we saw Jesus go into the temple and cleanse it. He cast out the money changers. He threw out the animals because they were stopping the Gentiles from worshipping God. So the score is Jesus 1 and Jewish leaders 0. Well then, what happened after that? Jesus spoke a parable against them against the Pharisees and the leaders, saying that they were the evil tenants of God's vineyard. And then, have a look at what he said to them in Mark 12 on your outline. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's God. He will come and destroy the farmers, that's the Jewish leaders, and give the vineyard to others. Jesus pronounced God's judgment on these leaders and the way that they had treated God's prophet and his son. And so Jesus gets the upper hand again. And so the score is Jesus on two, Jewish leaders on zero. I missed one episode in between. And so the other thing that happened was that the Jewish leaders questioned Jesus' authority. But Jesus then questioned them. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? What was their response? We don't know. And so now the score is Jesus on three, Jewish leaders on zero. Very sad. Tensions have been rising in our studio today as the Jewish leaders are looking for more ways to get rid of Jesus. What will happen in today's episode of Disputes with Jesus? Will Jesus remain in the lead or will the Jewish leaders get the upper hand? Well, let's begin round one. From the passage we read today, Jesus versus the Pharisees and the Herodians. Have a look at verse 13. 
Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. Well, the first thing we realize when we look at these people is that they're sent. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they're on a mission. But who sent them? Well, from the previous verses, we know it's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It's the bigwigs. It's the top of the Jewish food chain. They want to discredit Jesus and get rid of him somehow. So they send in the Pharisees and the Herodians. But who are they? Well, we know the Pharisees well. They are the strict teachers of the Old Testament law. They strive to obey the law and they call everyone else to do the same. But Jesus continually points out their hypocrisy. Now the Herodians. We don't know much about the Herodians, but it's clear enough that they seem to be Jews who supported or worked for the Herod family, the kings of the region. And it's funny that the Herodians and the Pharisees get together in this passage because the Pharisees hated Herod. He wasn't a real Jew and he kept interfering with Jewish religion. But the Pharisees and the Herodians come together. Why? Because of their hatred of Jesus. Shows you just how much they hated him and how hard they were working to discredit him. So, they're on a mission to trap Jesus in his words. To make him say something that would get him in trouble with the people, with the crowds, or to get him in trouble with the law. So, how do they do this? Well, first, they flatter him. Flattery is a good way to challenge someone. Have a look at verse 14. They press the buzzer. And they call him teacher. Flattery. They don't believe that he is a good teacher. But they come to him and say, Teacher, we know you're wise and truthful. We know you defer to no one. Which is outright lying. They don't believe this. They're trying to make themselves look good and Jesus look bad by flattering. And then they back him into the corner with this tricky question. Have a look at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? Now, I've got to hand it to them. This is a very clever move. This is the kind of play that will win you a round of disputes with Jesus, the popular game show. Why is it clever? It's clever because it puts Jesus in a tricky place. Very few people like paying taxes, right? Well, here, the Jews especially hated paying taxes to the Roman Caesar because he was their harsh overlord. They longed for freedom and independence and hoped and prayed that God would give it to them one day. So if Jesus simply said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, or the crowds, they would have hated him. But if Jesus said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, the Jews could have gone and reported him to the authorities and shown him to be a rebel, which is what they ended up doing, falsely accusing him of going against Caesar, even though he didn't. So what will Jesus do? Well, their clever answer is met by a clever... Their clever question is answered by a clever answer. Jesus... It's his turn. So he presses the buzzer, and it's his turn to respond. Have a look at verse 16. Jesus gets a Roman coin brought to him. And then he says, whose face is on this coin? 
Whose image and inscription? Whose name? Caesar's, isn't it? Well then, Jesus says, it makes sense that if it has Caesar's image on it, then you should give back to Caesar what is his. You should give back to him whatever he asks. Or in other words, pay your dues to the state. Give to the government whatever the law of the land says you should give them. This is one of those key verses for helping us understand what is a Christian relationship with the government meant to look like. Jesus calls his followers to be faithful citizens in his society. He wants his followers to pay their taxes and whatever other costs there are, whether they be fines or bills, they are to live righteously according to the law of the land. Because God is the one who places kings and governments in authority. And so we need to honour them. Now, thankfully, we live in a government that is amazingly prosperous and incredibly just and fair compared to many other governments in this world. Compared to the Roman government of Jesus' day. But Jesus is also saying, as well as that, to give to God what his law says you should give him. And what does God want us to give him? Well, whose image do we bear? Whose inscription is written on us? It's God's. God's image is in us, and so he calls us to give us to give him our whole lives, our whole lives in service and sacrifice to him in response to his generosity in Jesus. So Jesus amazingly defeats the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're amazed and dumbstruck. And so should we be. Those of us who've been part of a church for a long time know these words well, and we can take them for granted, but they are so wise. They are so clever. They simultaneously teach that we should give honor to the state and also honor to God. They, at the same time, teach us that these Jewish leaders are wrong, but the crowds still love Jesus. Jesus' wisdom here is amazing. So now, the score in our game of disputes with Jesus is Jesus on four, and the Jewish leaders still on zero. Things are not looking good for the Jewish leaders. What will they do next? Well, let's move on to round two, Jesus versus the Sadducees. In verse 18, we have a different kind of Jewish leader who comes to attack Jesus. We meet the Sadducees. So who are they? The Sadducees were the wealthy and important and leadership in the temple, the Jews who had control of the rest of the nation. But they also had different beliefs to the Pharisees and the rest of the Jewish people. Most Jews believed in the existence of angels and demons, spiritual beings. But the Sadducees did not. Most Jews believed that the whole Old Testament was God's word. But the Pharisees did not. They only believed the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, were God's word. And most importantly here, most Jews believed in the general resurrection. The day when God would raise all people and judge humanity based on their response to him. That he would bring in a new kingdom and a new age and a new creation. But have a look at verse 18. The Sadducees say, 
there is no resurrection. Once you die, that's it. Game over. You may have heard me or someone else say before that the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They're sad because they don't have that hope of eternal life that God has promised. That's a good way to remember who they are. And so the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection, and so they come to discredit Jesus on the topic of the resurrection. And they do this with a strange story about one woman and her very, very unlucky seven husbands who all die. So have a look at verse 19. We see the Sadducees press the buzzer, and then they say, Teacher, there's some more flattery. Moses wrote for us that if, a ma- if man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind, and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. They start with what Jesus will agree with, an ancient practice called leveret marriage, which God commanded to Israel through Moses. In Deuteronomy 25, he says, When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out of Israel. This was God's way of making sure that women were cared for, and also that the dead man's name and his inheritance could be passed on. We saw an example of this in the book of Genesis last year. Onan was selfish and would not perform this duty for his sister-in-law, Tamar. So, the Sadducees start with common ground. So far, so good. Yes, Moses did write these words. But then, they come up with an extreme circumstance. Imagine one woman marries seven brothers And all of them die without any children at all. It's pretty extreme, isn't it? But I guess it's possible. Then comes their challenge to Jesus in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Clever question, right? They're saying the idea of the resurrection is silly, and this is an example of why. If the dead are raised, but someone has had many legitimate spouses, well, which one are they married to? Surely then, their logic goes, there is no general resurrection, and now, Jesus, you look very silly, don't you? Because you believe in that. They try to discredit Jesus in front of everyone. They think they have the silver bullet to disprove him and show him to be a false teacher but they do not yet have the upper hand because now Jesus pushes the buzzer and it's his turn to speak. And he comes out guns blazing. Have a look at verse 24. Jesus told them, Are you not deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? Wow, that's some strong words. These days people might say dem fighting words. Jesus gives them two reasons why, just checking if you're awake, Jesus gives them two reasons why they're wrong. The first one is in verse 25. Have a look there. For when they rise from the dead, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. 
why are the, fa- why are the Sadducees wrong? Well, it seems like Jesus is saying that this hypothetical woman on the last day won't be married to anyone because in the new creation there won't be marriage. Now, over, over the years, Sarah and I have really struggled with these words. We love each other. We naturally want to be married forever. And not only that, but it seems strange to us that God would make this wonderful thing called marriage and then it would be stained by sin, only never to be restored again in the new creation. We found that really hard to think about at times. But I think we need to realize, and what I have been thinking about, is that I am not God and I do not make the rules. And I need to understand marriage in the context of God's incredible plans for this world. And there's a couple of ways that we can see this. First of all, it's clear in the Bible that death ends in marriage. When your spouse dies, you are free in God's eyes to marry someone else. And that's a good thing. So our wedding vows say, till death does us part. God's plan for marriage is for death to be the end so that in this life we can remarry if appropriate. Secondly, in the book of Genesis, one reason God created marriage was so that humanity could fill the earth and subdue it. We could have and raise kids and then rule and look after the good creation that God has given us. But when Jesus returns, he brings in a new creation which will be filled and subdued. It will all belong to Jesus, and we, his people, will rule and enjoy it forever. And so, our marriages, will have, will have, that original purpose of marriage, will be fulfilled. And perhaps that's why Jesus says there's no marriage in the new creation. Thirdly, this is the big one, marriage points to the relationship between Jesus and his church. The loving leadership of a husband is to be like Jesus' loving leadership of his church. And the humble submission of the church is meant to look like the humble submission of a wife. And as well as that, our marriages point forward to the great marriage, to the union of Christ and his church that day when Jesus returns. We see it in Revelation 21. The angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. That's God's people coming down out of heaven from God. And so on that day, Jesus and his church will be fully united and our marriages will have done their job of pointing to that wonderful day. So perhaps that's why there's no marriage in the new creation. So I think we can see, when we look at marriage in the context of God's bigger plans, we can be confident that he knows what he's doing with marriage. And I find it hard to believe that our personal relationships in any way will be less or worse than they are now in this sin-stained world. Wayne Grudem is a theologian who puts it like this. Jesus' answer, therefore, should comfort us and not trouble us. We should, not contem- we should contemplate heaven not with sorrow at the anticipation of diminished interpersonal relationships, for example, the end of marriage, but with joy at the prospect of enriched relationships. 
God's new creation will be better beyond our wildest imagination. And so we can leave it in God's hands and know that he will give us a greater existence than the one we enjoy now in a world not stained by the sin and struggle that we experience. So that's the first reason that Jesus thinks the Sadducees are wrong. There won't be marriage in the new creation. But then Jesus gives us a second reason. The Sadducees use the book of Moses to accuse Jesus and attack him. And so look at what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, haven't you read in the book of Moses what God said to him? And then he quotes Exodus 3, which you read before. And in Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what's Jesus saying? How does that prove anything? He's saying, notice how God uses the present tense. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while they are dead physically, they are alive spiritually and will one day be raised for all eternity. God, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. They are living, not dead. They will be raised. It's not the end of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus uses the tense of just one word, to prove the Sadducees wrong, and he does so powerfully. Just as a side point, this shows us how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. He saw it as the highest authority. He treated it with the total respect. He saw them as God's powerful words that carried his authority. That's an attitude we should imitate and treat God's words to us in the Bible as our primary authority because they are God's words to us. But back to our game of disputes with Jesus. What's on our scoreboard now? Well, now Jesus is on five, and the Jewish leaders are still on nothing. Very sad, very sad. Well, what will happen in next week's episode of Disputes with Jesus? Tune in next week, and you might find out. Who wants to play a game of Disputes with Jesus? I definitely do not. If you, if you try, you're definitely not going to win, that's for sure. Jesus, we can see from, these, from this chapter, Jesus is the true and wise teacher of God's people. In contrast to the Jewish corrupt leaders, he was faithful to the scriptures, faithful to God and taught the truth. But what else can we learn from this passage, this game of disputes with Jesus? What are, what are the things that we can take away? Well, here's three things that I think we can respond to Jesus in this passage. Number one, don't follow the corrupt Jewish leaders. Don't believe their deception. Don't listen to their teaching and so turn away from Jesus. Now, we don't have these Jewish corrupt leaders with us today, but we do have no shortage of people who want to discredit Jesus and tell us that believing in him is stupid. There's no shortage of people who want to disprove the Bible and say following Jesus is foolish. Don't listen to them. Yes, at times we need to wrestle with what they say. Yes, we need to hear their questions and respond. Yes, at times their arguments might even cause us to doubt. But don't be led astray by them. 
People have been trying to discredit Jesus since this passage until today. But Jesus continues to show that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you struggle with doubts, then know that there are wise Christians who have answered every single accusation brought against Christianity. Don't be ashamed to ask your questions and seek answers in his word so that your faith can be stronger, so that you don't turn away from the Lord Jesus. So number one, don't follow the corrupt Jewish leaders or those like them. Number two, don't imitate the corrupt Jewish leaders. Don't become like them and twist and distort God's word for your own gain. Don't yourself become the person who leads people away from fellowship or turns people away from believing in Jesus. This week in my gospel team, we read this in James chapter 1. I'll just read it out. Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. By all means, ask as many questions of God's word that you want to. Wrestle with it and come to understand it. But do so in a humble way. In a way that's not trying to undermine what God is saying, but trying to understand. And do so in a way that doesn't lead others to doubt or turn away from Jesus like these Jewish leaders did. Number two, don't imitate these corrupt Jewish leaders. Number three, have faith in Jesus, the rejected stone who has become the cornerstone. In last week's passage, Jesus told us, he told the Jewish leaders outright what was going on. Look at Mark 12:10 on your outline. Jesus said, this is what is happening. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God prophesied that Jesus would be the stone the Jewish leadership would reject. Jesus himself predicted how many times that the Jewish leaders would reject him and eventually nail him to a cross. And we see this happening in this passage. The conflict is ramping up. The disputes grow. Jesus is becoming that rejected stone to the point where he dies for the sin of the world. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen, and here it is happening. The Messiah had to be rejected and killed so he could die for our sin, so that anyone who puts their trust in him will not be put to shame, but will be forgiven and saved and given eternal life. Praise God for this amazing plan of salvation we see in this passage. But if you're here and you're still disputing with Jesus, if you're still disputing with him in your heart and mind, then listen to the warning of Scripture. Those who stumble over Jesus, the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. They will fall in God's judgment. But also hear the wonderful promise of God's grace, that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. They will be saved and restored to a relationship with God. They will be raised on the last day to live for eternity in the new creation. Put your faith in Jesus, the cornerstone. Don't put your faith in shallow religion like these Jewish leaders. Put your faith in the one who died and rose again for you. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this precious cornerstone that you have laid. 
this stone that holds the whole building up, that completes your salvation that you have been working on for thousands and thousands of years. Thank you that even though Jesus was rejected and killed, you raised him up and made him that cornerstone, the one who would bring us full, free forgiveness, grace and mercy and eternal life. Father, we thank you for showing us our amazing Lord again now. And we pray that you'd help us to put our faith in him and to flee from the religion of the corrupt Jewish leaders. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.